0: The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, tonight we're going to be looking at uh, verses 13 through 15, which bring up an attribute of God that people aren't used to talking about. See if you can find it as I read these verses. Verse 13. You shall fear only the Lord, your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord, your God, will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. Pretty intense passage, isn't it? Idolatry is subtler than you think. It's much more to idolatry than what you might imagine. Most of us, when we think of an idol, we think of it as a statue of silver or gold or wood or stone. We see in our mind pagans and pygmies, and we imagine Hindu or Buddhist temples with statues standing or sitting in their place of focus. One of the interesting privileges that uh, my family and I had a few years ago when I was working out at California at Grace Community Church was um, that we had a a gal in our um, ministry who was teaching English as a second language about a half mile from the church at a Thai temple. There were idols all in and all around this Thai temple. Well, they asked her in the course of their uh, interaction and study, um, and by the way, the they were the monks, orange robes, full-on, shaved heads. They asked her if, if she knew anyone who might be able to come to the Buddhist temple and teach them what Christians think about Christmas. It's about the Christmas holiday. So she came and said, would you be interested in that? Are you comfortable, she said, preaching and teaching in a pagan temple? I said, yeah, I might be comfortable with that. It's as close as I've ever come to being in Acts chapter 17 and preaching in the Areopagus. So I showed up there, and what was remarkable is it wasn't just the one big giant Buddha in in the temple. By the way, the Thais have a skinny Buddha. He's a real skinny, odd-looking, alien head-shaped guy, um, and he's really big. Um, well, I got a chance to stand in front of this um, uh, Buddha with my family there and tell these people what Christians believe about Christmas. And uh, we had a great time. I explained the gospel standing in their temple. And they're like, that's very interesting. And then they said, would you come back and tell us at Easter time what Christians think about Easter? So we got to go back a second time. The interesting, interesting worship, I could go on and on and tell you what we learned that day, that the uh, um, uh, the monks there um, cannot eat solid food after noon. So they can eat all they want up until 12 noon, and then they, ha- they can't eat solid food after that. I keep saying solid food because the way they get around that is they eat ice cream, and they eat cake without chewing. So they ask us if we would bring ice cream and cake, and so, I mean, imagine, is there a better night? bring ice cream and cake and preach the gospel in a Buddhist temple. That is good stuff. But it was remarkable to stand there and I can't tell you the overwhelmed feelings I had standing there with Buddha right behind me and these monks in their orange robes sitting, eating ice cream, listening to me teach them about the gospel. That's usually what we think about when we think of idolatry. Idolatry. All these ideas would be accurate and true in some form and in some circles. But I think there's a more sinister sort of idolatry, a much more devious idol. This kind is invisible to the eye. Sometimes it's known only to the worshiper. And other times it's known by everyone except the worshiper, the idol this person worships. These are called idols of the heart. I remember teaching on this uh, some years ago and talking about the idols of the heart and I had a very um, sincere young lady come up to me afterwards and says, I, I know that you really want to be biblical pastor, so would you please only talk about the idols that the Bible talks about? Just the real wooden, stone, gold, silver idols and not idols of the heart. I want you to stay, she said this, I want you to stay inside the pages of scripture So I said, well, do you have a Bible with you? She did. And we turned over to Ezekiel chapter 14. You might want to look there. Ezekiel chapter 14. Ezekiel is uh, uh, being encouraged by the Lord to uh, pronounce judgment on the people who were drifting. And the sin he identifies is very interesting. Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 3. Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them all? Verse 4. Therefore speak to them and tell them. Thus says the Lord. Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols where? In his heart. Puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity. And then it comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to give him an answer In the matter, in view of the multitude of his idols. It's very interesting that the idols of the heart are described as besetting sins here. Sins that are held onto as precious and treasures. These are things that are worshipped in the heart that function as clear as the idol that could be made of stone or silver or gold or bronze. Let me give you some options of these idols of the heart. Materialism the idol of what I can get and what I can own. We just left the Christmas season, which is uh, uh, maybe one of the, the biggest promoters of the, the idol of materialism in our culture and certainly in our seasons. Everyone knows that wonderful empty feeling after the presidents are all wrapped and thinking, that was fun, I can't wait 365 days till we get to do it again. Many people worship that thing, and you understand things, you can worship them, but they will never satisfy you. You have never gotten a thing, and after getting that thing, said, I am so satisfied with this thing, I will never want anything else, right? Another idol is hedonism, the idol of what I can enjoy. I want to experience, enjoy, uh, you name it. Whatever causes me to feel or experience something pleasurable, you pursue that. Then there's the idol of social status in the heart, the idol of what others think about me, what they think about us. That idol pops up in almost every conversation we have almost every day. What does this person think about me? We set up that idol, we worship it, we bow to it, we, we um, do anything we can to make sure it's shiny. Then there's the idol of ambition. Ambition. It's the idol of what I can accomplish, what I can achieve. This is where we think I'm better than someone else at, you name it, which gives us significance and meaning in our hearts. Basically, an idol is simply this, if you want a a kind of a working definition. An idol is anything in your life that you will sin to get or have or experience or sin because you don't have it or get it or experience it. You can identify that. You've just identified the idol in your heart. All of these idols really make one composite image in our minds and our hearts. All of them point to one main idol in the heart, and that idol is drumroll in the mirror it's oneself. It's the desire for the world and others to all work in some combined way to make me happy. Isn't it interesting, these idols of the heart, which were all all referencing self and self-enjoyment, self-fulfillment, self-gain, all of those go exactly diametrically opposed to the gospel, which says, let a man take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Idols of the heart are about competing loyalties and affections. And these competing loyalties and affections compete with God for your attention for your resources, for your love, for your affections. You know, I wish we had time just to stop and spend a few minutes praying right now and say, can you identify the idols in your heart? What are the idols in your heart? What is it that you will sin to get or to experience? What is it that you will sin because you didn't get it or didn't experience it? God's perspective about idolatry is interestingly all bound up in one of his attributes that we don't talk too much about. The attribute is right here, it jumps off the pages of Deuteronomy, and we're gonna go back into the book of Exodus, turn to Exodus 34 to find a little bit more about this attribute of God, and it's God's jealousy. God's jealousy. In Exodus 34, you'll remember this is just after Moses goes up the second time uh, on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments. This is the second copy. The first copy, he came down and shattered uh, after he found in uh, chapter 32 the worship of the golden calf. He goes back up in chapter 33, chapter 34 to, uh, uh, to meet with God. He receives a second set of the commandments. And God gives him a little footnote. God gives him a little extra revelation, a little writer on the covenant, the promise, the the contract that the law was to make between the people and God and God and the people. In verse 10 of Exodus 34, he says this Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a promise, a covenant. Before you and before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. It's quite a promise. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. There's so much in that verse. God says, I'm going to do amazing things. And when you see amazing things that I have done, you will fear me. You will tremble. Never forget the the man who says, Jesus shows up, puts his arm around me every morning when I shave. My question is, did you cut yourself? Because if that happened, you would fall on your face in horror. Jesus' best friend, John, who laid with his head on Jesus' chest during the Last Supper when he sees him in the book of Revelation, falls down as a dead man. To see God in his goodness, God in his greatness, God performing mighty deeds, is to be overwhelmed and to experience extreme fear. We'll come back to that. Verse 11, be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you. Here's these mighty things that he was going to show them. This was a militarily untrained people. They had no military training. They grew up in the desert, watching their parents die so they could go inherit the land. That great and marvelous thing, he was going to take basically kids who grew up with no military, very little athletic training. They're trying to, to scrounge around and have manna in the day. Sometimes they had meat from quail, and that your existence was get through the heat of the day and start over tomorrow until your parents die so you can go see the promised land. What an existence. He says, I'm going to take this group of people and dominate Destroy the enemies above you, b- ahead of you. Be sure to observe what I'm commanding you this day. Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, the Canaanite, the Hittite, Perizzite, Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no promise, no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. Don't get into a contractual relationship with them into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Why? Why would it be so bad? To have some peace treaties with the people in the land. Verse 13. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars or idols and cut down their asherim. These were pillars and idols of idolic worship. For you shall not worship any other god. For Yahweh the Lord, whose name... This is interesting. Whose name... Is jealous, is a jealous God. In your prayer life, I'm sure you say, Father, Lord, God, Jesus, Spirit, Redeemer, Savior. When have you ever addressed God, Dear Jealous? Yet that's His name. Names in the Old Testament were intended, to, in the New Testament as well, to capture the essence of who a person is. When you, even to this day, when I hear your name, I think of all you are. Who you are is imported into that name, and vice versa. Uh, when I see you, I think that's who you're represented by as your name. God's name, one of God's name, is jealous now, if you're like most, and if you're like me, the first thing you look at that when you, and you process that, you say, that, that doesn't sound right. Isn't jealousy bad? Aren't we told love is not jealous? Aren't we told to not pursue covetousness? Aren't we told to, to avoid jealousy at all costs? You don't it's like to feel jealous, don't you? I remember. I remember, I remember. There was this beautiful... Beautiful, taller than me, godly girl out of Grace Church. And I wanted to dispense. I was kind of warming up to spending time with her. Just for argument's sake, let's call her name Kim. Um, And she, uh, it was my wife, but not at the time. She was, I was looking at her and starting to get attracted to her. And I remember um, uh, trying to organize things in which we would be in close proximity. Otherwise known as manipulation, but hey, if it's, not, if it's for a good re- purpose, so be it. Well, I called her because we were a bunch of us were going to do some things on a Saturday, and, and she says, uh, oh, I can't Saturday. And I said, Really? Why can't you do a Saturday? She says, Well, I have a commitment. What's his name? <laughs> I can go tango with this guy. I mean, I'm little, but I used to wrestle. I can get him at the knees. I can take him down. You just let me know who. And so now, I felt in my heart, do you know when the vagus nerve fires and you just kind of feel this this rush, like this is not right. Something is not right here. And I said, really? What commitment do you have? Had nothing to do with a guy. (laughs) For which I was really thankful. But I know what it's like to be jealous. Jealousy... And that probably was a wrong jealousy, is wanting to own or possess something. So, in general, and I say in general because there are some ways we should be jealous for the Lord and a husband should be jealous for his wife in a way that protects her. But generally, most jealousy that we experience is sinful jealousy, which says, I want to own a person, I want to control a person, therefore my jealousy is the emotion of wanting to be like... God God can be jealous because his desire to own a person is not sin. It's his right. That's who he is. God's jealousy is not sinful. God's jealousy is deserved. God's jealousy makes sense because he alone can own a person. So anyone, especially those who call themselves a Christian, here, those who are in the covenant community call themselves Jews, anyone who names the name of God, Yahweh here, as their Lord, Savior, Redeemer, owes their entire life to him. And when... When affections are drawn away to other affections, either outside our body or inside our heart, as Ezekiel confronted, idols of the heart, idols in the world, then we are idolaters. Again, where do what will you do? What is there in your life that you will sin in your heart or even externally, with your mouth, with your actions? What will you sin to get? or sin to experience, and what will you sin, what makes you sin if you don't experience it, what makes you sin if you don't get it? That's the idol. When you identify that, that's the very thing that God is telling the people of Israel here, do not let competing allegiances fight and elbow me out of first place in your heart. That takes us back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. You have to have that, that, that background that God's name is jealous. And that's in the context, by the way, of going, making a covenant with the people, getting in with them, making a peace treaty. And then his the fear was, God's expressed fear for the people was, you will then make a relationship with them and their gods. That's why we've told our sons from the time they were children, the person who will have the greatest Spiritual impact on your life is the person you marry. Be very careful making that choice. Let's break this passage down, and as we do so, I want to find with you four responses to the jealousy of God. Four responses to the jealousy of God. These all have a little adjective that I've put with them, exclusive. And the reason it's exclusive is because the Hebrew text indicates these are only, only, only phrases. Four responses to the jealousy of God. Response number one, exclusive fear. Exclusive fear. Verse 13 of chapter six says, you shall only fear, the New American Standard says, exclusively fear the Lord your God. Very interesting. Be afraid of God. Isn't that just the opposite of what most people would tell you? Don't they want to tell you, hey, God's, Uh, uh, loves you he has a wonderful plan for your life don't be afraid of him come embrace him and there is there is one side of truth in the love of God being extended in the gospel but let's break down fear why do we fear anything we spoke about this back in Deuteronomy 4 fear comes from a perceived threat right sometimes we fear things that aren't there you fear things in the closet when you're five years old that end up not being there. You, you fear this, fear that. The proverb says, you know, you fear that a lion is going to come and, and destroy you and there's no lion around you. You can fear things that aren't real. But real, the worst fear is the fear of something that genuinely is a threat. We fear things that are threatening to us. Yare is the word that means uh, in Hebrew that means fear. And I have seen and heard explained so many ways as reverence and awe. And, and there's a nuance to that, but you can't make the word mean anything other than being afraid. Being afraid. You shall be afraid of or fear only the Lord your God. You go back to Exodus 34. What was to cause the people to be afraid, to be fearful when they saw how great God was and what he did in his name's sake and for their benefit, driving out all these people ahead of them when they were had no military, no army, no, no training at all. Now, if that's what God had done for these people, is that was their great and mighty act? That puts things into perspective for you and me. We we have seen the greatest act in the history of the universe in which God sent his son to be the sin bearer for the sins of those who have believed the gospel. And then he rose from the dead to prove that it was true. There is no greater act that should cause Fear. That's why you see John laying on his chest at the, at the Last Supper and his buddy, and, and they were very you know, uh, familial and good friends. And then in Revelation, you see him in chapter one, he sees him and he's brighter than the sun. He can't even look at him without his eyes melting. And he falls down before God, before Jesus, as a dead man. That's incredible. Why? Because now he had seen the full, wondrous, glorious act of redemption and resurrection. And it made him afraid. Did he love Jesus any less? Oh, no, I think he loved him more. Did he know Jesus any less? No, he knew him more. Did he care about Jesus any less? No, his care was off the radar chart. But he saw him as he was, understood his greatest act, and it caused him The fear. Here's the best way to look at it. If you struggle with the fear of God, it's not because we struggle understanding what fear is. It's because we don't know God and the essence of who he is. Um, uh, Proverbs 1, the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. That's where you start. Ground zero is who is God and what is he like? If you go back over to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, remember the day you stood before the Lord At Horeb, when the Lord said, assemble the people to me that I may let them hear my words so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. Very interesting. Look over at chapter 5, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always that it may go well with them and their sons forever." More times than not, when you see the, uh, the admonition to fear the Lord in the Old Testament, it's attached to his commandments and to his word. You cannot learn to reverence and fear God without a thorough understanding of God, and you cannot get a thorough understanding of God without reading the Bible. Yes, this is the Read Your Bible More sermon, aren't they all? So the question is, do you fear God? Now, we can go over into 2 Corinthians chapter 7. This is not simply an Old Testament uh, admonition. I've heard people say, well, sure, you fear the God of the Old Testament because he was so wrathful, he was so mean and drove out all these armies and was such a God of war. And yet, in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness What? In the fear of God. Ephesians five twenty one says the same thing. Second Peter, I want to excuse me. First Peter, this is a powerful passage. Uh, Peter writing to those Christians who are fleeing in persecution. And in First Peter chapter two, uh, verse seventeen, he says, "Honor." I love this how pithy he is. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the King. So in your theology of living and all of your ethic, fear God. It's just one of the ways you express holiness. So here, in, back in Deuteronomy chapter 6 now, God is saying, fear me and fear me exclusive, exclusively. Let you, the, the, the honor and the reverence you would give something that would be a threat come to me because there is no greater threat than the one who can punish one in hell forever. And even though he's not going to do that to us who know his son, he still is the great judge and still worthy of awe and reverence and fear. First response to the jealousy of God is exclusive fear. By the way, we're saying this is a response, if you go look down in uh, um, uh, the end of these verses, uh, he says, for God is a jealous God, so everything builds toward that. That's where he talks about the the jealousy of God. That's the the purpose clause, the motivation clause. Number two, exclusive worship. Not only exclusive fear, exclusive worship. This can't be any simpler than what what you read in the text. And, verse 13, you shall worship him and swear by his name. Worship is a very interesting Hebrew word. Sometimes you can translate it worship as in a a service, and sometimes you can simply translate it serve. Do things for. Obey. You shall worship him. You can translate that, you shall alone worship him. Then we get into this interesting thing, swear by his name. Doesn't the Bible tell us not to swear by heaven or earth? Well, sure it does. But what that's doing, what James and Peter tell us when they tell us not to swear, they're, they're saying, don't let your integrity be so diminished that for anyone to believe you, you have to say things like, I swear by heaven, by God. I stand on a stack of Bibles. If you have to swear by heaven or earth, you don't have any integrity. What is he saying here? Swear by his name. What he is saying here is if you make a promise, it's underneath the authority of the great name Yahweh here, and for us, Jesus, that your swearing, your word, your saying yes, and your saying no, is actually done as an oath before God and before the world of your allegiance and your kinship to your Father in Heaven. Exclusive worship. Now, why would he tell us you shall worship him and swear by his name? Because we're tempted to worship our idols and to draw our integrity from other things. Worship is service and affection. And God is our ultimate authority. A third response to the jealousy of God is exclusive allegiance. Exclusive allegiance. Verse 14. You shall not follow other gods or idols. Any of the gods Of the peoples who surround you. Students, can I talk to you just for a second? Junior hires, high schoolers, collegians. If there was ever a verse in the Bible that specifically addresses the power and the resistance that you're to have toward peer pressure, it's this verse. Look at it again. You shall not follow other gods. That sounds simple enough. Any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. There's, there's a lot of interesting uh, footnotes you could add to this, this passage. They were supposed to go in and wipe these people out. But God knew that in the end they would be disobedient to this. So he's giving them a provision. It's like in Deuteronomy 17 when he says, I'm your only king. I'm the only king you should ever love and serve. But when you get in the land and want a king, here are his qualifications. I mean, his contingency plan is amazing. He has everything figured out. But back to this text, verse 14. You shall not follow other gods. In this context, you see uh, uh, back in Exodus 34, talking about going into the land. These are idols, idols that could be external, idols that could be in your heart. And by the way, we do have external gods, not just idols of the heart today. It could be a car, it could be your house. It could be a possession. It could be an experience. It could be a drug. It could be a drink. Anything that you will sin to experience or sin in order to obtain or sin because you're deprived of that pleasure, external or internal, those are gods that beckon us to worship them in our day and in our life. But then you find out this peer pressure any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. How blessed is the man who does not walk, where? Near the wicked. Summarize that whole psalm. You're avoiding the wicked. Does that mean that we somehow excise ourselves in the world that we, uh, we, we... We don't do homeschooling. We we do room schooling and closet schooling. We're going to put all of our people in one closet with our family and never see the world, and that way we'll be holy and godly. None of you believe that. Of course, that's not true, but there were a group of people who did believe that. Ever heard of the monastic movement? The monks who really believed their philosophy, their theology was if we could remove ourselves from the world and its influences, then we could be holy because that's what makes a sin, if I can remove myself from the people around me, I will be sinless. The problem is you are and I am a sinner, and we don't need anybody around us to sin. This passage, however, is talking about people you're around. So, so um, back to the students for a second. Who, who do you choose as your friends? What are the value systems? Can I make no bones and say about it and say, listen, your best friends ought to be in this building. Sure, you can have friends who are, who are unbelievers. You better have friends who are unbelievers so they can hear the gospel from you. The Great Commission doesn't start when you're 21. It starts when you become converted. But you better choose your friends pretty wisely. We could take a long detour right now. We won't because of time and talk about Solomon. Started out so well in in 1 Kings. He starts out just amazing. Um, And then he um, begins to have affection for foreign women. Peace treaties gave him women. And you understand the, the logic behind that. Solomon says, I give the pharaoh... Some of uh, the women of Israel, and now these are his wives and concubines. He has children with them. He gives me some of the Egyptian women. I, they're now my wives and my concubines. I have children with them. Now we have a peace treaty. We would never fight each other because we'd be fighting cousins. Solomon put his trust in that rather than in the Lord. God said not, not to do that. And yet in that, in 1 Kings 11, it says, but he loved many foreign women and the thing that he did displeased the Lord. This was Solomon. This was the wisest man on the planet. Who are you surrounding yourself with? Tell me who your friends are. Let me see what your friends' idols are, and there's a good indication you will be tempted by those idols as well. I mean, come on, don't you know the reality of that? You get around people and you like the things they like, even from a simple meal to a jacket or a coat or a car. Or you just tend to like the things that others like. That's not sin in and of itself. But when that becomes the occupation of your heart that says, I need to experience or have that or I won't be happy, that's an idol. Because these people in this land didn't have Yahweh, didn't have God as the, the foremost uh, most. Uh, passionate pursuit of their affections, God said if you surround yourself with them, they will pull you down before you ever pull them up. Exclusive allegiance. And that's controlled very much by the people you surround yourself with. Number four. Lastly, exclusive motivation. Exclusive motivation. This is a response to the jealousy of God. Where do we find our motivation? Now we find verse 15. For the Lord, do these things, have exclusive fear, exclusive worship, exclusive allegiance. Why? Here's the motivation. For the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Do you believe that your God is jealous? Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you. When he gets jealous, because that's who he is, he gets righteously and rightfully angry. And he will wipe you off the face of the earth. A few things we need to know about that. He was talking specifically to that generation. He had already made an eternal covenant. He would populate the land with basically, if not these people, people who would follow him. He was talking specifically to individuals and say, if you don't do this, there will be serious consequences. Hebrews 12, is a very interesting passage. It says that the, one, the sons that God loves, he disciplines Can we just talk as friends here for a moment? If you are able to pursue sin with no consequences, you have a really good reason to ask yourself, am I a child of God? One of my greatest assurances in my my own experience that, that God loves me and that I'm a Christian, I can't get away with anything. There just seems to always be this... Confrontation in my life. I have four wonderful people who tell me, Dad, Dad, or honey, honey, look at what you've done. I can't get away with much. That's grace. That's kindness of God. You shouldn't be able to get away with much. But if you can entertain sin over an extended amount of time with no consequence, you need to ask yourself if you are in the category of Hebrews chapter 12, which says, the one who's my son, whom I love, I discipline. Look at 1 Corinthians 6 for a moment. How does this equate, this passage? Is there a New Testament equivalent of, of this kind of instruction? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. All things, Paul says to a group of Christians, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. There's a lot of things, liberties and stuff I can do, not profitable. All things are lawful to me, but I will not be mastered by anything. How do you know if you're mastered by anything? Ah, that's when it becomes an idol of your heart, when it begins to control you, when you sin to get it or sin because you don't get it. Food for this food is for the stomach, the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. What do you mean? He's going to tell us. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members? Of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? I can never be. Or do you not know that one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, The two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Verse 18 Flee immorality then. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. I read all that to get to verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that you, your body, the you you know of you, is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is there? He's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. Is that clear? If it's not. Verse 20 is the spiking of the ball in the end zone. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. God is jealous for us. Our actions, our heart, our our decisions, our relationships, our affections, our friends, our friendships, our dating relationships, our husbands, our wives, our children. He is jealous that in all of that, he is the owner of us. Unless you push back with a stiff arm in his face and say, I don't like being owned, remember the cost. Paul Paul instructs us here, when you're troubled by your death to yourself, when you're troubled by your own... (laughs) Crucifixion of the idols in your heart. When you're troubled by that, you remember this. He bought you with the death of his son. We never wander very far from the gospel, do we? It is our motivation. Jesus is jealous for you. Yahweh, Old Testament, is Jesus in the New Testament. He is a jealous God. That's why he says in Colossians 1.18 that he himself is to come to have first place in what? Everything, all things. We read it this morning. So how are you doing? Well, I can see areas of my life that are I, idols and affections. The question is not, have you eradicated them all? Because... It's interesting. Uh, Paul says in in, in Romans 12 that you crucify these things and, and somehow they're resurrected and they come back. Don't you wish you could repent of a sin and it would be over? You'd never have to deal with it again the rest of your life? It just doesn't work like that. This is a daily battle. There are besetting sins. There are idols that you and I will struggle with uniquely the rest of our lives that other people might not even understand. If you don't know what it is, you'll never try to crush it. You'll never pray about it. You'll never seek the Lord for, for grace and for power to deal with it. You must, we must identify those things in our heart that God is jealous of because we're sliding our affection from Him over to these things. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with you, with your body. Let's pray. Father, every time I read this passage in First Corinthians 6, I am uh, I'm shaken. Though the sins here are immorality, it's really a, an easy principle to expand that into every sin. With our mind, with our body, that you are jealous for us. I'm so sorry, Father. I'm so sorry for sins in my body, sins in my mind that I've done this week that that I know you're jealous of. Please grant us forgiveness by can, uh, help us to feel, rather, the forgiveness that you've granted because of our confession. Grant us the confidence of your favor that you have died for these sins. We don't have to be a slave to them. And when we struggle with them, there's grace. So give us the power to struggle, to fight, to hate our idols in our heart, knowing that you are a jealous God wanting exclusive allegiance from your people. We want to be those people, Father. Remind us of yourself. Remind us of your word. Tune our hearts to see your providence and to never buck against what you've brought into our lives, but to see how we can respond. We study this morning in a way that brings us holiness and you glory. Lord, this uh, passage could easily have condemning conviction in a person's life unless we realize that those sins that you identify are, are crucified on the cross, that you have died to forgive us of those to free us from the penalty of those. So give us gospel thoughts, gospel thinking. Don't let us wander far from the cross. We pray this because of what he did on that tree, our Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.